welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop as we are kind of midway through our Holy Week. Thank you for being here, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. And we have talked about Palm Sunday and the Chrism Mass, and now kind of halfway through, thought maybe we'd focus a little bit more on our Holy Thursday, Good Friday kind of transition up into Easter for people. Uh, maybe we lead us in a prayer before we get started? Sure, I'll, I'll do the opening prayer that we pray on Good Friday. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember your mercies, O Lord, and with your eternal protection, sanctify your servants, for whom Christ your Son, by the shedding of his blood, established the Paschal mystery, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Holy Week is here, and on this episode of Truth and Charity, hear our bishop reflect upon two special events we'll celebrate. First, Holy Thursday Mass, the rich symbolism of Jesus washing the apostles' feet and the humble leadership he models for all of us. Then Bishop connects the institution of the Eucharist, which we also remember on Holy Thursday, to the first Passover. And afterwards, Bishop walks through and reflects upon the crucifixion story right at the Good Friday service. Hear more about Pontius Pilate's search for truth, the scourging at the pillar, and the role Mary played in our redemption. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer on a future show, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com askbishop. This is Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop, Bishop Rhodes, and uh, I think a lot of times with our regular lives, not a whole lot has changed. Work is still the same, school is still the same, we still have our same obligations, and we might not think of this week of Holy Week as something that's different, uh, but hopefully we can make some time this week to reflect a little bit more on the passion of Christ, and hopefully this episode will be uh a resource for people to do that and help people to reflect on Holy Week, and especially as we lead up to the Good Friday crucifixion of Christ. And so I thought maybe we start with Holy Thursday Mass, also known as Monday Thursday, or Mass of the Lord's Supper. Can you explain? I think you'll be celebrating this at the Cathedral of Immaculate Conception, 7 p.m. That's right. That's the beginning of the... Easter Triduum, the Paschal Triduum of the Passion and Resurrection of the Lord. This sacred Triduum is the culmination of the whole liturgical year. Mm -hmm. So I would like to recommend and encourage all the listeners, these are the most three holiest days for us as Catholics, beginning with Holy Thursday evening and attending the Mass of the Lord's Supper. And then, of course, Good Friday our Lord's crucifixion, Holy Saturday, our Lord's being in the tomb and the descent into hell. And then, of course, the Easter vigil, Holy Saturday night, and Easter Sunday, the resurrection of the Lord. These are unique days, um, and their celebration is of the greatest importance in the spiritual life of the church. And really, I would say, you know, to try to make these days of prayer 
and of penance, fasting, and up until Easter, up until uh, after the Easter vigil. So I would like to just encourage everyone, especially to attend the the Triduum liturgies in the at the cathedral or in their home parishes, beginning with uh, the uh, evening mass of the Lord's Supper, which ends the season of Lent and begins the Paschal Triduum. And can you talk a little bit about the Holy Thursday Mass? And I feel like there's a couple different components to it. Yes. I mean, the one unique feature of it, well, well first of all, it's the first time we'll have the Gloria sung because we, we've refrained from singing the Gloria okay. during Lent. As I said, Lent will be over. We sing the Gloria, and then we don't sing it again until the Easter Vigil. Hmm. But obviously, we don't sing it on, um, on Good Friday. But it shows that there's a certain joy on Holy Thursday because of the institution of the Holy Eucharist hmm. and the institution of the ordained priesthood. The focus, I mean, we hear in the readings of Holy Thursday evening about the Passover Mm -hmm. uh, in the Old Testament from the book of Exodus and in the gospel every year on Holy Thursday, it's St. John's account of Jesus washing the feet of the apostles at the Last Supper. And what makes this liturgy really unique is that after the homily, the the priest washes the feet of 12 of the people. And uh, it's a very uh, beautiful gesture. And um, so that's the second thing that we think about and celebrate on Holy Thursday, the institution of the Eucharist, but also this action of the washing of the feet, which um, in a sense sums up the whole mission of Jesus who humbled himself and took the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men, as as St. Paul wrote to the Philippians, and then even gave himself, humbled himself to die on the cross for us. All that's represented in the washing of the feet, mm. the humility of Christ. And then we have that dialogue with where Peter felt, uh, you know, he wasn't worthy for Jesus to wash his feet. And Jesus said, well, unless I wash your feet, you have no inheritance with me. So it was it was clearly a reference to baptism that we Mm. need to be washed clean of our sins. And that's what Jesus came to do to redeem us, to free us from the slavery of sin. And I've been in many different parishes that have done this different ways. And even the same parish of, you know, changing it from year to year. Is there a particular way that you think is appropriate or that you prefer the washing of feet to be done uh, as far as, who is selected for that? Should it be people that are really involved with the parish, employees of the parish, a variety of people, ages, genders? Uh, and then also I've seen it sometimes where then they go and wash people's feet. And so it becomes like a procession of people washing feet. Is no, there? no, that's not, that's not uh, allowed. Okay. That's, that's actually an abuse. No, it's, it's just the washing of the feet of 12. Uh-huh. Uh, but who those 12 would be are... Um, that's up to the the pastor's choice. Um, this year, in the, both cathedrals, I'll be washing the feet of young adults. Um, hmm. If you notice, each year Pope Francis usually goes somewhere where he washes the feet of the poor. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes he he's been in prison, right? 
uh, sometimes at a youth detention facility. He's uh, so it's it's can be it's very very meaningful. But really, the way it should be done, I, I like it to be visible to the congregation, so that the twelve who are selected are sitting. You know, chairs are put in the front, so so the congregation congregation can see. Mm-hmm. There's. Uh, a chant or a song that goes on while the priest is washing the feet. Usually it's um, from John chapter 13, where Jesus gives us the new commandment to love one another. It's called in Latin, the mandatum. Mandatum means commandment, because that's what we're uh, celebrating. Jesus gave us the new commandment. Hmm. You know, after uh, in that same chapter of John's gospel, chapter 13 he jesus says i give you a new commandment that you love one another as i have loved you and that's also what the washing of the feet signifies okay and then you also mentioned the passover and the connection of the eucharist to the passover can you explain that a little bit that's another good theme for a homily by the way on holy thursday because we have that first reading from exodus chapter 12 which gives the details of of the first Passover. I think everyone knows the story. God was about to deliver his people from slavery, would send the the destroying angel to put to death the firstborn sons of any family that doesn't do the, the ritual of the Passover sacrifice. And basically that ritual consisted of various steps um, the sacrifice of a year old unblemished male lamb Hmm. and then they were instructed to dip a branch of hyssop in the blood of the lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the home as a sign Mm -hmm. and then what they have to do eat the lamb Hmm. so the whole passover ritual wasn't finished wasn't completed by the death of the lamb it was completed when the Israelites ate the flesh of the lamb that was slain. Okay. Um, now, obviously, this is a foreshadowing of of the new Passover. I'll get to that in a minute. But okay. but in the Jewish tradition, this was very important that they uh, celebrate this every year. God commanded that the Passover be celebrated every year in the spring as a memorial of the their deliverance one for his people. So through the centuries in the Jewish tradition, the biblical Passover developed and there were different changes. For one thing, they not only would eat the Passover lamb and unleavened bread, but then they had four cups of wine that they would drink in the course of the Passover. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and then develop the part of the celebration where the father would do a special blessing over the Passover bread and wine. It's very interesting because at the time of Jesus, when at the Last Supper, it said that he he took the bread, blessed it, and took the wine and blessed it. Uh-huh. He was doing this the Jewish prayer of blessing. Okay. Also, during the meal, the son would ask the father of the family, why is this night different from other nights? Hmm. And the father would say, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Hmm beautiful because they're saying they're seeing that this memorial that somehow that act that exodus that act of deliverance freedom was somehow made present during the passover liturgy 
Yeah. It's very important to remember because we think of the Eucharist. This is the new Passover. So on Holy Thursday, we hear that reading about the old Passover, but now we're celebrating the new Passover. Jesus is the lamb. Mm-hmm. And he's replaced the, the flesh and blood of the old Passover lamb with his own flesh and blood. And as the Jewish Passover is a memorial feast, so is, and you become present in a sense at the, at the first Passover, same thing happens with the Eucharist. It's a memorial feast. Jesus said, do this in memory of me. And we're actually participating in the one new Passover at the celebration of Mass because Christ's passion, death, and resurrection are become present on the altar. So it, we don't just remember with our minds the sacrifice that Christ offered once and for all. That once and for all sacrifice becomes present. St. Paul, uh, in his first letter to the Corinthians, said, Our Paschal Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Paul's referring to the Eucharist, hmm. the new Passover feast, which is a sacrifice. And it's a meal at the same time. And just as for the Jewish people, um, they had to eat the flesh of the lamb in order to complete the Passover meal. It's the same with the new Passover. It's completed by eating the flesh, by receiving Holy Communion. You, know, you think of the words that the priest says when he elevates the host, behold the lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the lamb. Hmm. So, the new supper of the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the evening mass of the Lord's supper is very beautiful. You have the washing of the feet, but you also have this remembering the Passover and then its fulfillment in the new Passover, the Holy Eucharist. And at the end of mass on Holy Thursday, we have a procession with the blessed sacrament to a place, another altar, another place in church where it's reposed and people can come and pray through the night, remembering our Lord's prayer and his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane because it was after the Last Supper that our Lord went out and prayed and had the agony in the garden. So it's really the whole beginning of our uh, celebration of the, of the Triduum. So Holy Thursday, I really do encourage our people to... Uh, to participate. Yeah. One of the other things that they do at the end of the mass is take the altar linens off. Mm -hmm. Is that done everywhere? Is that yes, part of the... that's part of it. Yeah, they strip the altars bare. Uh -huh. And because now we're entering at the end of, we're entering into the passion. Mm -hmm. You know, the commemoration of the Last Supper is finished and Jesus is going to the garden. It's the beginning of the passion. So the altar is stripped bare. Uh, the whole church is is very stark, except for the altar of reposition, where the Holy Eucharist is is carried to. All right. Well, on that note, we'll talk about Good Friday and walk through the gospel message of Good Friday right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. 
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here on this Holy Week episode. We've talked uh, quite a bit about the Holy Thursday Mass, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, the washing of the feet, and wanted to lead into explaining and kind of going over the gospel message for Good Friday. Uh, you mentioned at the end of Holy Thursday, the, the Eucharist is processed to a different location, sometimes within the church, and it seems like sometimes maybe they'll have a, a different room outside of the church reserved for the the Eucharist to be set up for adoration or something like that? Yeah, especially if they have a, a chapel, for mm -hmm. example, in Fort Wayne, they'll uh, will bring the Holy Eucharist in procession to the chapel of St. Mother Theodore Guerin, and sure. that would be the the place where people could visit and pray. But in most churches, it would be at a like a side altar. Right. Yeah. And so, Good Friday is the only day of the year that we don't actually celebrate a Mass. That's correct. And can you explain why that would be important? Yeah, I mean, it's the day of our Lord's death. Um, so instead of Mass, we have what's called the celebration of the Passion of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And there's three parts to it. There's the Liturgy of the Word, there's the Adoration of the Cross, mm -hmm. and there's Holy Communion. But Holy Communion, it's not the Liturgy of the Eucharist because it's the distribution of Holy Communion that was already consecrated the night before at the Mass of the Lord's Supper. So would you call this a service and not a mass? Right. You can call it the Good Friday service. Okay. The, the technical name is the celebration of the passion of the Lord. All right. And then the reading, the gospel reading is John uh, chapter 18 and chapter 19, kind of a, a long section here. I wondered if we could just kind of walk through that and have you give any insights into some of the different aspects of the story and maybe kind of look at some of the other gospels occasionally to, to fill in some of the details. We hear about Jesus being arrested and at one point they ask if he's who he, he is and he says to them, I am. And they turned away and fell to the ground. Can you explain why they would have fallen to the ground at this? Yeah, because he was really using a divine title. You remember God revealed himself at the burning bush with, I am who am. So Jesus using that, referring to himself, that was, you know, assuming a divine, uh, they were scandalized by it, you know, it was assuming the divine title. In, in Greek, it's ego a me, I am or I mm -hmm. am who am. So they, they saw that connection, that that's the name that God, by which God revealed himself. So that's why they fell to the ground. And then out of anger, Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. And so Jesus reprimands him, telling him to put his sword away. And he says, shall I not drink the cup that the father gave me? Can you explain this whole exchange and maybe why he was upset that Peter was defending him in this moment? Yeah, I think because by that, you know, Jesus, you know, wanted to do his father's will mm -hmm. and he was willing to die for us. So I think Jesus' response, uh, shall I not drink the cup that the father gave me? He's talking about the cup of suffering. It was, you know, don't get in the way. Mm -hmm. he, Jesus is basically saying to Peter of, of me doing what I need to do. So 
but if you look at different uh, gospels, and I can't remember which one, there's also where Jesus says, those who live by the sword die by the mm-hmm. sword. So it's also kind of a, a statement against violence, I think. Yeah. And then Peter starts denying Jesus. Uh, the first denial happens a short time after Jesus has been arrested. And then, of course, there's two more times. Jesus predicted this would happen, told Peter that it would happen, which he says, no, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, and then after the third denial, Peter is, is said he went out and wept bitterly, which is a different reaction to Judas's realization that he's betrayed Jesus. So I, I imagine this is an important lesson for us, too, about whenever we've made a mistake of how we should be reacting to it. Yeah, I think the difference is Peter repents and entrusts himself to to Christ's mercy. He was very sorry, deeply sorry. He wept bitterly. The difference is Judas was distraught at what he had done, but he despaired Hmm. and committed suicide. He did not, um, I mean, whether or not he repented, I guess is an open question, but the fact that he didn't return to the Lord for mercy mm-hmm. like like Peter did. That's that's the difference. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we will talk more about the gospel reading of the crucifixion from Good Friday service right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we're walking our way through the Triduum, which begins on Holy Thursday, and we've been talking about Good Friday and some of the readings of the crucifixion story that we hear at the, in the Gospel. Um, at one point, Jesus is standing before Pilate, and... He's in the palace and Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? Which seems like a very important question that we should all be asking and maybe fits in with your motto in this show as well. Uh, we don't have a response from Jesus to this. Why, why do you think he doesn't respond to Pilate? Well, Jesus has just been speaking about truth to okay. him. He, he said to Pilate, for this, I was born mm-hmm. and for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Uh-huh. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Uh-huh. And it's then that Pilate said to him, what is truth? I mean, Jesus didn't answer that question. It says in the gospel that when Pilate uh, said that, he went out to the Jews. Maybe Jesus didn't have enough time. If <laughs> Peter, maybe Pilate left right away. Hmm. But in reality, truth was right there in front of Pilate. Mm-hmm. He was speaking to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. But it's a very important question. I think that was, I think we could say Pontius Pilate introduced the philosophy of relativism. Mm-hmm. What is truth? It sounds like he said it in a very skeptical or cynical way. What is truth? You know, our 21st century, we have this whole mentality of relativism, this mindset that there's no objective foundational truth, only perceptions of truth. 
opinions, you know, like I have my truth, you have your truth. That's kind of like Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. What is truth? No, truth has an objectivity, you know, but unfortunately we live in a time where there's so much blindness toward truth. And this is a really big, big problem. So I think when we, when we read this part of the, of the story of the passion, it's, it's good to think about uh, the problem we have, that mentality of Pontius Pilate questioning what is truth. I mean, there right in front of him was God in the flesh, you know, Jesus, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. If someone says, I have the truth or whatever, I think it's, it's important to say, no, the truth has us. The truth is Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I've heard it compared to whenever he, it seems like Pilate realizes that Jesus should not be crucified, but then he washes his hands of it saying, this is your decision and not mine, which I've heard people compare to people who will say something like, uh, I'm not for abortion, but I believe somebody else should be able to choose that. Right. Saying like, I realize the truth, but yeah, again, relativism, that somebody else could have a different version of the truth. Uh, But at the same time, he tries to make, uh, I guess, some kind of a, a deal with people and saying, well, I could release Jesus or I could release Barabbas. And we listening to the gospel as the, the crowd in the congregation, we say that we want Barabbas instead of Jesus. Can you speak a little bit to that trade-off? Oh, I mean, I think Pilate was maybe he knew Jesus was innocent. He, he even said, I find no guilt in him. Hmm. So this was his way, uh, you know, to, to, I think he was hoping that, they would want Jesus released rather than Barabbas. But at that point, you know, the people cried out that they wanted Barabbas released. At that point, Pilate caved in, you know, in a sense of he, he didn't stand up for the truth. He didn't stand up to the fact that, that Jesus was innocent. Instead, he condemned him to death hmm. because of the public pressure or to keep the peace. You know, he was looking out for his own good. Yeah. You know, he would have gotten in trouble with Caesar if he had allowed any kind of an insurrection. So he uh, he just went with what the people wanted, even though he knew it wasn't right. right. He didn't have the courage to do what was right and good. He shirked his responsibility. And uh, we see that. I mean, that's a temptation, you know, to want to be popular. We see it with politicians, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to get elected and they'll compromise on the truth. We see it in some politicians, uh, but even in our own lives, you know, afraid to get, uh, you know, to stand up for what we know is right and good for the gospel because it might not be popular. In some ways, it's like Pilate, you know, he, he just washed his hands uh, of it. And rather than fighting evil with good, he, he just gave in to what he knew was wrong. And then this leads up to the scourging, which, you know, we've got the crown of thorns, the purple cloak, the mocking, the striking, this torture that Jesus undergoes. What does Christ suffering, first of all, I guess, why is that necessary that Christ had to, to suffer such a painful and torturous 
not even the death in of itself, but leading up to it and then the death. And then what does that mean for our suffering and, and people that are struggling with why is there suffering in the world and that kind of tie in? Right. Well, I think Jesus assumed this uh, worse kind of, of um, treatment in solidarity with, with us. I mean, he was willing to suffer the most horrendous kind of death mm-hmm. and the worst kind of torture that that the Romans inflicted was was really scourging flagellation. I mean, it was very brutal. If you've seen that scene in Passion of the Christ, I think they really show its bro- brutality. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd have this whip that would have three leather tails on it, and then there'd be metal at the end of the tails. And then they would do, you know, 40 lashes, sometimes less if they think they're person's going to be die beforehand and they don't want him to die yet but i mean it is not only lacerations of the skin i mean it's so much uh harm physical harm done to a person Mm -hmm. when they're being scourged um you know sometimes they'll puncture uh organs you know they'll get so deep you know the lungs whatever so loss of, of blood loss of of fluids, all that extremely painful. So the pain and brutality of this kind of torture, the hemorrhaging, etc., and then on top of that, the crowning with thorns, which was also extremely, extremely painful. The kind of thorns that were on the uh, bushes growing there in Jerusalem. There was excruciating pain that Jesus endured, and I, I think it was that he was taking upon himself all the evil. He was taking upon himself all the sins of every age. And uh, this kind of represented it. So the cruelty of the Roman soldiers. And um, I think it is important. It's the second sorrowful mystery of the rosary. I know we don't want to think about the scourging because it is awful to think about. But it also reveals to us the depths of Christ's love because he didn't have to do it. He accepted this out of love for us. And this is how he saved us. And mention also that there is a scourged Christ statue in the diocesan museum, which just recently moved uh, over to the chancery building. And it's a, a beautiful and graphic depiction of the wounds of Christ. Uh, Maybe I'm not sure what their hours are for Holy Week, but might be uh, a nice little thing to do for Holy Week. Um, But if anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And Bishop will continue to reflect on the crucifixion of Christ coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And on this special Holy Week episode, we've been reflecting on the Triduum and talking about the crucifixion of Christ. And when Jesus is crucified, we hear about the location being Golgotha or the place of the skull. Is that location of any specific significance? Well, there's a lot of scholarly research that has been done about the place of the crucifixion. You know, we have the name Calvary, which in, it's a Latin word, Calvarium, which is 
a translation of the Greek cranion, where we get cranium, okay, huh. skull, okay, which uh, is the equivalent for the original Hebrew Golgotha. But hmm. um, there's been a lot of research about where it is um, and what it is. Uh, where did this come from? There's some who say, well, it was probably a place where they had a lot of skulls because people were there were a lot of public executions there. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting when you read those, and it's mentioned in all four Gospels, it doesn't use skulls in the plural. It uses skull. It says place of the skull. Okay. So there has been a tradition. I guess it goes, it's a Jewish tradition, but also you see it in the fathers of the church where they speak of it as uh, that was the place where the skull of Adam was buried. Hmm. Um, now, we don't really have any historical evidence for that, but it was a tradition that, uh, and maybe that's where the name came from. It was referring to the place where they believed Adam was buried and his skull was buried. Um, I think another opinion that's possible is that the the physical contour of the place, that it look like uh, a skull, the, mm -hmm. the land there, a skull-shaped hill. Mm -hmm. And that's another theory. You know, I don't know which theory is correct. We really don't know. But it's interesting to study it. There's different scholars who have different opinions of that. And then the whole question of, of where it is now. And, of course, the strongest tradition and seems to be the most well-founded is the place that we where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built. Mm -hmm. Some would argue that since Jesus was crucified outside the walls of the city, that wouldn't be the place because it's inside, but it's inside the present-day walls. At the time of the crucifixion, it would have been outside. And, of course, not far from the place of uh, where the rock is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is believed to be where Calvary was, is the tomb. That's where we get the word Holy Sepulchre. Mm -hmm. um, but all those are kind of historical um, discussions and archaeological debates that go on about the place. Mm -hmm. um, the most important thing, I think, is is what happened there. Sure. Um, Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, does tell us that the crucifixion took place outside of the city. But as I said, even though it's inside the city today, it would have been outside the wall at the time of Jesus. And then surrounding the cross, we've got his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary of Magdala. No disciples were at the foot of the cross other than John. Is this because they were scared to be seen there? Are they, were they worried? Were they embarrassed? Were they didn't want to witness it because it was too devastating? I mean, I think it was fear. Uh -huh. I mean, I really do. Uh, if you remember in the account of the Passion, you know, that's when Peter denied him when someone pointed out, oh, he was with him. He was right. one of his disciples. Right. So I think it was more fear, although John was there and, you know, he's the beloved disciple. He was he was the one who, uh, according to St. John, was there at the foot of the cross with, with our Blessed Mother. I've always admired John the Apostle. I took him as my confirmation name. But maybe it was his love for Christ that gave him the courage to be there at the foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. And then that exchange that happens, the woman behold your son and saying to John, behold your mother. Is that more than just 
hey, I need you to watch over my mom for me. And, you know, kind of this like spiritual adoption of sorts. Is it, is there something bigger there as what it means uh, for the church? Much bigger. I mean, what, how did he address Mary? Woman, behold your son. Just like he addressed her as woman at the wedding feast at Cana. Hmm. I mean, there's deep meaning there. She is the new Eve. She's the woman of the book of Genesis where when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. She's the woman clothed in the sun and with the moon and the stars at her feet. So there's a much, much deeper meaning and also as a representation of the church. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary is a figure of the church. So I think there's, yeah, we could talk a lot about that whole scene of Jesus. And I think there was that practical aspect where, yes, John was going to take care of Mary after Jesus's death. But, but yeah, there's something much, much deeper there. And it's also, you know, Jesus giving John or giving Mary to us as our spiritual mother, because as John then took her into his home, we're invited to take Mary into our home. Mary said yes at the incarnation, at the annunciation, and then she said yes at the redemption, hmm. at the foot of the cross. There's so much there, um, but there she was given to us as a beautiful gift from Jesus. He gave us his mother to be our mother too, and, uh, and her faith, her faith at the Annunciation, but also her faith at the death of Jesus. She really shared in his suffering yeah. um, and therefore had an important part in, in our redemption. And then as... It says, aware that everything was now finished, and in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. Which, when we say scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. What scripture is this referring to? Well, Psalm 69, if you read Psalm 69, actually it's a great psalm to read uh, on Good Friday, mm -hmm. even in your private prayer, because it's... Um, it's, it's very much a prophecy of a prophetic psalm. The psalmist uh, prays, for example, it's basically uh, a just man it's, uh, who's, who's suffering and asking God to save him. The psalmist says things like, I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. I have become an outcast to my kindred. He goes on, he's lamenting his suffering, and he's a, someone who's just, who's, you know, still, still uh, you know, suffering, even though he's just. But at one point, he says in verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So we can think about how you know, sour wine, vinegar. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what Jesus was given to drink as he was hung upon the cross. So, so really that whole, um, that Psalm 69 is often cited by the New Testament in the Passion accounts where the psalmist is praying, not really for vengeance, but for public vindication of God's justice. So the early Christians and the evangelists naturally connected that to that psalm to to jesus's passion especially his words i thirst mm -hmm. and then can you talk about the significance of the blood and water that flows out whenever the soldier pierces jesus with the 
Lance? From what I recall, of course, we know blood would have come out from the heart, the side of Christ by the spear that was put sure. into his side. But also, I think the water was probably a fluid that had built up in the lungs. Uh, so there's a physical explanation, but mm -hmm. there's also a whole spiritual and theological uh, explanation of the blood and the water. Uh -huh. um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. First of all, it shows that Jesus was truly dead. I mean, that was why the soldier pierced him. So we have a, a, a real human being. Um, but then the fact of what's the meaning of, of the blood and the water? Well, when you read the whole of John's gospel, you know that references to blood and water allude to the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. um, John uses water as a symbol for the new spiritual life from heaven that the disciples would receive, the new birth of water and the Holy Spirit that is baptism. So it has this sacramental meaning, and it's the same thing with the blood. Jesus commands his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood mm -hmm. in John chapter 6. And in doing so, they receive communion with Jesus. They receive eternal life. They receive a share in his resurrection. So clearly, the flowing of blood and water is a real spiritual reality that Jesus' death is the source of spiritual life for all of us. You know, and that spiritual life, the waters that flow in the sacrament of baptism by which we're born again, born anew, of water in the Spirit, and then the drinking the blood of Christ in the Eucharist where we can grow in communion with Jesus and share in his resurrected life. So it's, it's really very beautiful. We have the vision of the divine mercy image of St. Faustina, which mm -hmm. shows us the rays coming from the heart of Christ, the white and the red, and again, the water and the blood. Even when you go back into the Old Testament, there's a lot of prophecies about how water will flow from the temple. And of course, Jesus is the new temple. Mm -hmm. Even St. John connects the piercing of the side of Jesus with the prophet Zechariah. Because John quotes that. He says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Hmm. And if you continue reading that passage of the prophet Zechariah, it says, I will pour out on the house of David. Well, actually, it's before. He says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of mercy and supplication. And that's what we have um, with the Pierce one, this outpouring of God's spirit of mercy on his people. And that was what flowed from the heart of Christ. It's the outpouring of God's spirit, the outpouring of God's love, the waters of forgiveness, regeneration, salvation, forgiveness of sins, all of those things. Yeah. Such a, a powerful time in our liturgical calendar and uh, a powerful way to end our Lenten sacrifices and prayer and fasting that we're doing, almsgiving. And so hopefully people can make it to the Good Friday service or at least make it to a, a church for some time of prayer as well. And reflecting on these readings is a, is a great way to, to bring that into your prayer. One of the things that 
often they do at the end of a Good Friday service. I don't know if this is mandatory or optional, but they would end in, in silence rather than having a, a song that they end on. So I thought maybe we could do the same with this episode and just end it with a, a moment of silence and, and a time of quiet meditation. And so I thank you, Bishop, for this reflection. We want to thank Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for their support of this show, all those that have been listening and supporting us throughout this Lenten journey especially and thought maybe we could get an Episcopal blessing and then just end in silence. Okay. And blessing for you and all of our listeners that you have a very holy Easter Triduum and a very blessed and happy Easter. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with kindness and give you his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.